This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2022 and welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, JP's en route, so I have a good friend of the podcast, Dr. Mike Steinmetz with us. Mike Steinmetz, as we all know, is the chair of the Cleveland Clinic Neurosurgery Department. He's a leader in the spine field. We've had him on as a uh, chair of the spine section, also to talk about his hobbies, including fishing. Mike, welcome back. Thanks, Mike, and Happy New New Year to you as well. It's great to be back on the podcast. Yeah, so we're so delighted that you could give us a perspective on this because, you know, neurosurgeons have such great and interesting career lives. And, you know, we're, we're talking about the cases that are interesting and the cases that we have difficulty forgetting or we learned a lot from. Tell us about, and I know you have lots of them, tell us about one of those cases in your practice. You bet, Mike. What, what a great topic. And I, I think we can all reflect back on and, and think about that one patient who maybe came in paralyzed and we operated and they walked out or, you know, some of these miracle type cases. And those are great to reflect back on. But I was thinking about for this podcast, what case I would choose. And I, and I chose a case that I really learned a lot from. And it, it's an interesting um, case in that we spent a lot of time with our trainees thinking through stress and anxiety and how we uh, act during a case and make sure we think clearly. And in this case, it really didn't go that way. You know, I think the stress and anxiety, what was happening got over me or got all over me. Uh, and I made a number of uh, judgment calls that ended up being wrong when I looked back on, on the case now. Um, now, luckily, this patient ended up okay. I went, That's my caveat to start with. Uh, is at the end, everything turned out well, uh, but all the steps we took just ended up uh, basically being the wrong choices, and even though we thought we were doing the right thing. So I thought I would step through that case, uh, you know, kind of from beginning to uh, end, and I can go ahead and get going with a mic if that's okay with you. Yeah, and, and uh, give us the setting, like how long ago was this in your career? Was this a recent case? Was this in Cleveland? Give us some idea of the context. Yeah, it, it was here in Cleveland, and uh, it was probably maybe six years ago or so. So not that long ago, but not not that recent. Um, and it was a it was a trauma case. It was a about eighty two year old man who had a known odontoid fracture. We've all seen these elderly odontoid fractures, and we treated them in a collar. I think in in my practice, that's often what we do in these in these patients. Um, and, they, and we often get away with it. They heal or they get a stable pseudoarthrosis. Mike, I'm sure you've treated hundreds like this. Um, this guy, unfortunately, fell again and presented to our emergency room a second time, neurologically intact, just having neck pain. But when we imaged him, there was a more significant displacement, kind of a posterior displacement um, of, the, uh, of the C2 fracture. So I thought, even though he was an elderly gentleman, I thought it was prudent to go ahead and do a posterior C1-C2 fusion on him. He was a pretty vibrant old man. Um, I thought it was you know, a good choice. And um, uh, he was fine with that. I went over the risks of the operation. Um, he understood what we were going to do, and, and, uh, and we were all clear. Um, so we took him to the operating room. Now, we started off somewhat late in the day, and I, and I think that's important when you look at sort of how this case went is we really weren't, you know, starting off at 7.30 in the morning. We really didn't have the A-team on board, and uh, I'd already done a few cases before this. Um, now, Mike, can, can I ask you, so you say sure. he's in his 80s. Correct. He fractured his odontoid, and he refractured it. 
well, I don't want to say refractory. It was fairly recent after his original fall. He, he, we were still treating him in the collar, and he fell again and displaced while he was still in the healing process. So it, it was probably only maybe less than a month or a few weeks after we saw him originally. So, so it there's was a long time. There's no question about the indications here. Like 90% yeah. of surgeons would say, we, we need to do this case, right? I, t- I totally agree. Yeah, this okay. is something I think most everybody would agree needed needed surgery. And I think everybody would agree uh, to do it posteriorly based on his age. It was displaced fracture. And, I, you know, I obviously can't show the images, but, you know, a dontoid screw uh, just was not the right thing for this guy. Uh, no, no way around it. So, no, I don't think any argument about doing surgery or doing it posteriorly. Um, so we, we approached it posteriorly, uh, myself and my fellow. And um, as I, you know, standard approach, no, no issues or concerns. I looked at the films in detail. There were no anatomic concerns, had large uh, pars in articulars and pedicles bilaterally. But we approached it and did a very nice dissection. I'm like, I don't know about you, but I tend to sacrifice the C2 nerve roots uh, in these cases. Uh, I really like to see the, um, the C1 lateral mass when I put these screws in. And I think I just get a much better uh, biomechanical fixation when I do this. I know many people don't do that, but I think I lose less blood um, and I can just do this. Uh, I can do this better. And that's just my technique. Now, um, so, no, Mike, let's just give a little shout out here because we can bring up Dr. Otu Goel's name from India, who uh, has always uh, trumpeted that he invented these uh, C1 lateral mass screws. And he, I understand, universally sacrifices that route, right? He does. I believe that's right. Yep. And he, he was, is right. There was always this controversy. Was it Goel or Harms? But, uh, but you know, Goel Atul uh, did publish that, I think, first. And so we'll give him credit for that. And I think he does. I think you're absolutely right. Sacrifice that. And I, I know many surgeons that, that in, you know, were never sacrificing the C2 root. Now they routinely do it. I think it just makes it easier. How, how about you, Mike? Do you, do you sacrifice the root or do you leave it? I, I try to save it, but I, if I have to take it, I'd rather take it than the vert. And, and I wanted to yeah. get to the point of, I want to say that the modern construct you're going to describe and that we all use is actually first described by your mentor, Benzel and Resnick, right? Correct. Yep. Yep. They, okay. I, they published a biomechanical, was it a biomechanical study or a case study on that uh, early on when, when Ed was in Albuquerque uh, looking at the C1, C2 uh, fixation. You're absolutely right. That, and I think often that's where some of the controversy with Goel came because I think they published that uh, claiming it was the harms technique. And I think Goel wrote an editorial. Does, does that ring a bell with you, Mike? Does that sound right? Uh, I think you wrote like letters to every single journal there is on the planet. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, um, so we could credit Ed for that uh, that early controversy then, perhaps. Uh, but I, I can't say that for sure. I guess this will, this will go down in history. So I, don't, I guess I can't say uh, without looking back on that if that was true or not. But in my mind, that was true. So, um, so, but getting back to it, so I was going to put bilateral C1 lateral mass screws, right, polyaxial, then C2. You know, I prefer a pedicle screw because uh, I can triangulate, put a much larger screw in C2. That's just my personal preference. I, I think I can do that fairly safely and adequately. But I do like to really visualize the C1 uh, lateral mass uh, when I do this. Okay, so I've got to set the stage with that for what happens next, right? You, you may even imagine your mind without me saying what happens next, what happens next. So we're dissecting uh, the C1 lateral mass uh, in this gentleman. Uh, the le- we cut the left C2 nerve root. No issues. See the lateral mass. Um, cut the right C2 nerve root and start cleaning off the lateral mass. We can see it uh, visually, and we start encountering some blood, uh, fairly significant blood on the right side uh, lateral mass on the la- towards the lateral edge of this. 
so, you know, again, mistake number one, as we all know, I've given multiple lectures on this, so have you, and, and we tell all trainees, you don't need to be, uh, you don't have to expose more than about one and a half centimeters uh, from the midline at C1, right? We don't really even need to see the lateral aspect of those C1 lateral mass. You just got to get to the middle of it and maybe palpate the lateral part. But it was a little bit too aggressive, I think, with my fellow and exposing this since it was going so well and the anatomy was showing itself so well. We end up damaging this, the vert with the bovi right as it's entering, you know, ex exiting C2 and entering C1. Now, we were able to pack it off uh, fairly easily. So that was nice, right? So everything was controlled at this point. You know, you, you kind of get a little bit anxious thinking, is that venous blood? Is it arterial blood? But I've got it packed off, um, you know, Let's just wait and see, uh, you know, and, and keep going here and, and see what happens. So I, I packed it off, stopped bleeding. I'm, I'm starting to get, you know, quicker heart rate here, thinking we may have damaged the vert. But, you know, you're always second guessing yourself and always trying to talk yourself out of this. I'm thinking, no, nah, it's just Venus. It'll stop. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put my hardware in on the left side. But, you know, that's the side that exposed nicely. And then I'm going to come back and look at this. So. Put my lateral mass screw C1 uh, on the left, the C2 screw on the left uh, with no complication. I tend to use fluoroscopy for those C2 screws and C1, get them right where I want them. Uh, and that went well. And I went back to the right side to go ahead and uh, instrument this. Um, and I took the, I, I tend to, you know, drill my starting hole in the midpoint of C1 with a, with a Midas drill. And I had patties packed off what was bleeding, uh, cotenoids, and I don't like to drill, probably you don't as well, you know, with 60,000 RPMs with a cotenoid string sitting there. It's just like a helicopter blade. So I took all the, the cotenoids out and sure enough, you know, it starts bleeding again and pretty profusely. Um, and at this point, I'm looking at it, you know, pack it, unpack it, look at it, and I'm pretty convinced um, it's a vertebral artery injury. So now in my mind, sort of changing tunes or changing gears on my approach from just fixing this fracture versus, you know, now what, you know, now what do I do? I, I don't know if you've ever had a C1 uh, or, or vert injury, Mike. I know we've talked about it. I've, I've heard you give lectures on it. I've given lectures on it. But up until that point in my career, I'd never encountered one on my own. So yeah, now so th it ahead. wasn't obvious to you, right? It wasn't that you saw like blood hit the ceiling. It wasn't no. like that. It was not, yeah. It was it was pretty profuse, but as you know, when you're getting in those veins around the C2 root, it can you can get a lot of bleeding. Now, not under high pressure, but a fair amount of bleeding. Now, it became fairly obvious uh, after I was, you know, packing it off, unpacking, looking at it, you know, that yep, this is definitely arterial blood. It's under higher pressure. It's not just a muscular branch. You can get that muscular branch coming off the vert occasionally in that area. You know, if you're if you're coming in a more far lateral approach, it was nothing like that. It was now very obvious that this was arterial blood. Uh, and now I need to do something uh, in order to get this, uh, you know, problem fixed. And this is where uh, everything starts unraveling uh, in this case, because now I'm approaching something now, and it's a little bit later in the day, Mike, I, I just want to give you the kind of the framework here. It's probably around, let's say maybe 3.34 PM when this happens, right? So now we're really changed shifts. It's later in the day. A lot of people are gone, and now I'm thinking, now what am I going to do to get this thing uh, fixed? I, I thought, you know, I kind of, you know, so-called uh, buried my head in the sand to some extent, thinking if I just packed it off, waited for a bit, uh, I'd come back and it would stop bleeding and I would just get out of there, right? But every time I took the cottonoids off, 
no way. It just, it just took off bleeding again. So that was not an option, right? Some people talk about that. Wasn't working on my end. Uh, and so I had to do something uh, here. Now, so if you break it up in cases in, in parts, I knew I could stabilize the fracture. So that was done. I already had unilateral fixation in. Uh, so I put a rod in on the other side and I did a quick um, Sontag type C1, C2 wiring, you know, just under C1 arch and around uh, the C2 spinous process. So I was stable. So at least the, the fracture was out of the way. and I was well on my way with that. So that was done. Now I just needed to figure out the vert. Uh, and here is where, um, uh, looking back on it, uh, I think about this so much differently on how to approach this and, 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 and what to do and what we did wrong here. So uh, I'm going to kind of stepwise through this. So step one, obviously, is injuring the vert. We were more lateral than we needed to be and, and didn't need to be there. Uh, step two was... Uh, not having uh, a good communication with anesthesia with, with what was about to happen, right? So every time I would go and try to investigate the vert, obviously I'm losing a fair amount of arterial blood in an 82-year-old man. Uh, and anesthesia needs to be prepared with blood in the room to keep up with that. So the first thing I did was very cavalier. I said, well, let me just go try to find this thing and see if I can expose it and you know, call somebody in to fix it, see if I can fix it myself. But every time I went to go look at it, you know, all I did was lose a ton of blood and we had to kept trying to, we kept trying to dissect it, try to find it. We were having trouble finding the vert itself, not even the injury without losing a lot of blood. And he kept becoming incredibly unstable. Again, an 82 year old uh, uh, losing that much blood that quickly is just a bad thing. So, uh, so that was wrong, right? I should have said, look, stop, let's get blood. Let's do this in a stepwise fashion, be very prepared, not just go look around at this consistently and make this man unstable. So I did that, right? So now we're way behind the eight ball on blood loss. Um, he's doing okay. Mike, how much, how much do you think we've lost at this point? Oh, geez, I would imagine probably 600, 700, 800 cc's blood at that point, you know, just trying to investigate it, maybe even up to a liter. Okay. But the difference is, Mike, as you know, is that was quick, right? It was like, you know, sometimes we'll do these bigger cases, you lose a liter over six hours. This is a liter over, you know, probably 30 minutes, right? So, so again, a, a big mistake on my part, not, not preparing myself with anesthesia, not going to look at that vert until I was prepared, right? I had... I didn't even have anything in the room to repair it if I needed to, right? Did I have any small suture? Uh, did I have any aneurysm clips to, you know, to temporarily clip it? I was just looking at it, and that's a mistake. So going after this thing uh, in a very cavalier fashion without being prepared, anesthesia, surgical tool-wise, was, was an error uh, looking back on this now. So I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the injury. I lost a lot of blood. He's unstable. Uh, and I'm back to packing this thing off. So I have it packed off again. It's not bleeding, but my first attempt failed. Now I'm running through my mind. What else can I do here, right? What's what's my next what's my next move? So my initial thought was, well, let me have the endovascular team come up and see what they can do, right? So then that it seems like that makes sense. Mike, what do you think, right? I, I don't think that's an error. Have these guys come up and and uh, see if they can uh, do something about this injury. Yeah, no. and it's four thirty or whatever, right? So you need to let them know as soon as you can about this stuff, right? Exactly right. Now, now these guys also made some errors as well. When I go through all of this, because they could have helped me go through this as well. So they come up now again. The scenario, right? It's probably four thirty. He's locked in a Mayfield head holder, prone on electric table. 
with his neck open, he's slightly unstable and everything packed off. And every time I take the packing out, he bleeds, right? So I've got it like really controlled. So um, they come in and we, we talk about what's happening and, you know, what are our options? And they said, well, what we could do is go through his arm, right, through his brachial artery and access the vert. And I was like, oh, yes, thank goodness, right? Here we go. The day is saved. This is going to fix my problem. Uh, and uh, we're going to get this guy off the table and be done with this. So they get his arm out at his side in the prone position and fumble around for probably another hour. Okay, so just to give you so maybe it's 530 now. They finally access the brachial artery and they were able to get into the vert, okay? And I'm thinking, thank God, we're done. We got this thing under control. My anxiety level now has gone way down. So they get in the vert, and I'm like, all right, you know, put a stent or something across it. And these guys look at me, and they're like, no, we can't do anything with a stent through his arm. You know, there's nothing we can even do here. Like, And I'm thinking to myself, well, what are we to spend an hour for waiting for you to do this. Now, again, this is late at night and you could question what team is in there doing this. So they say, there's nothing we can do in the arm. Uh, and we're like, well, now what do we do? So we, and, and I'm, obviously you can figure out what we could have done here, which we didn't do. And I'll do, I'll talk about this at the end. Um, we talk to them and they say, well, why don't we take him down to the angio suite and we can go through the groin and we can stent this thing. And I was thinking, all right, what are we going to do and how are we going to do this? So we said, fine. So we put a ton of packing in his neck and we closed the wound. All right. Now call me crazy, but we took him down to the angio suite, locked in a three point head holder on the elect on the electric bed, rolled him down to the angio suite, which is not in the OR in this hospital. It was a floor down. And we rolled him onto the uh, then off the table in the three point head holder onto the angio table. Again, his neck is packed with all kinds of you know, sponges and everything, everything to tamponade this thing. And uh, we rolled him over and he's stable. So I'm thinking, well, the thing didn't cut loose. We're okay. And I go, to, you know, I'm like, I got to walk away for a second. My fellow is with me and he's with the Angio team uh, and going to help them get, get a stent across this thing, right? So they get access to the groin, they get up in the vert and they deploy a stent. And so I am like, oh, thank goodness. We got it closed the stents fixing the artery um, we just got to get him back up in the operating room open it back up and get the packing out and get out of there so uh we get him back up to the operating room after all this so now it's i don't know what it maybe is seven o'clock at night right um the guy's been under anesthesia for a long time lost a lot of blood but we finally got a stent in the vert we roll him back over prone on the table is locked back on prep take open the wound take all the packing back out Start removing the cotinoids from around the vertebral artery injury between C1 and C2, and you can guess what happens next. Brisk red blood squirting out of the thing, right? Wait, I thought so, they stent it across it. Well, here's the story. So I call the angio team back up. I say, guys, what is happening here? Uh, why is this thing still bleeding? And so they come up, they pull up the angio films. They stented the vert, like, I don't know, somewhere between C3 and C4, so nowhere where the injury was. And they said, well, we talked to your fellow and he said, this is on the, on the, on the squirt, this is where the injury was. And that's where they deployed the stent. Well, they so couldn't they see the injury. They couldn't because we had it so tamponaded, like we packed it like crazy. You know what I mean? So where they thought the injury was, was nowhere near the injury. So they did stent the vert, but just nowhere near the injury. So now yep. 
I've got a stent in the vert. I'm bleeding again. It's now like, you know, 7 38 o'clock at night, and we're stuck again thinking, now what are we going to do? Right. Now, in the day, Mike, uh, they used to just, when we were in training, they used to just sack it, right? They would well, just take the yes. risk and sacrifice it. Yeah. So now you are um, right where we should have been, right? So, in retrospect, it's so easy, but the angio team, nor us, ever thought about, even when they got into the arm, shooting an angio and just trying to figure out if the contralateral vert fed the brain, we could have just sacrificed it immediately and been out of there five hours ago, right? So at this point, we don't even know, you know, what the status of the vert was, you know, could we sacrifice it? But we were at, because no one looked, I didn't ask for it, uh, again, mistake, and even the angio team never really did a good, you know, uh, for, you know, full angio to try to look at collateral circulation, and can we just sacrifice this thing? They wanted to deploy a stent, um, which they did, and you know we were still bleeding. So now, we're so at let me guess, Mike. Where, let me guess. While you, while they're in Angio, you go and talk to the family, right? Yeah, I'm talking to his wife and saying, "Look, this is exactly what's happening." You know, and I don't know what the outcome's going to be. You know, we could lose him because we're losing a lot of blood, and he's unstable. He could have a massive stroke. He could die from the stroke. Um, and so I was trying to keep her very informed what was happening during all this time. And you're exactly right. It was right at that moment. Cause I had some free time that I had talked to the wife and, and let her know what was happening. So now we're at a point though, where we have to do something. And really our only option is to try to find and repair the verts or try to sacrifice it. And so what, what I did at that point, so about maybe eight, eight thirty at night, I called one of my vascular surgery colleagues, not a cerebrovascular colleague, but a vascular surgery colleague to come in and, and assist me. I had my fellow the whole time and it just wasn't working. And so we uh, found the vert, her and I, and again, we lost tremendous amount of blood, patients unstable again. And we were looking at ways to see if we could fix this pottery injury. And then the senior vascular surgeon came in and sort of just looked at what we were doing, looked at everything around. He goes, you, he's like, you guys are crazy. You needed to sacrifice that thing and get off the table, you know, because you're just doing, you just keep digging yourself in a hole, you know? And so we eventually just uh, clipped it, sewed it off and sacrificed the vert right at the end. Still not knowing, Mike, believe it or not, at that moment, we still didn't know what the collateral circulation was, despite everything we'd done, been in the arm and been in the groin. We didn't have a good idea, uh, really. We, we knew what the size of the vert was looking at the pre-op imaging, but no, no functional test. Uh, but we went ahead and said, we're just going to have to sacrifice this um, and see what happens to him. And again, we, we made this decision like, I don't know, what are we, five or six hours after the original injury? You know, when you you had it in your mind originally, so why didn't you sacrifice it? Uh, that's something we could have done in the first place. But we sacrificed it um, and it stopped bleeding. We closed him up, got him off the table. Uh, you can imagine he woke up incredibly slow, right? And I, I don't think I slept at all that night while we were trying to wait and see what his exam was. But, you know, believe it or not, as I, as I, as I left off with this, he had good collateral flow and he didn't have a stroke. Um, he, he had a very slow recovery because we kept him under anesthesia for so long and we lost so much blood, probably a couple of liters, maybe two liters of blood at the end of this thing, whole thing. Um, and he ended up doing okay. We ended up having to send him to rehab. He just didn't go home afterwards uh, because of all of this. But he ended up recovering from it, didn't have a stroke, uh, and, and got back to his life. And so um, I think when I look back on this case, you know, it's a case that can be used for, you know, for teaching purposes because it does go through the steps that you can go through, but things that we need to be thinking about, like, you know, 
one, I needed to be prepared at the beginning before I went and looked at the vert, didn't even have tools to fix it, probably didn't have the expertise to fix it at that point. Number two is if I can get access to an angiogram, you know, to an artery, shoot a full angio, because if I knew that that left side was dominant or had good collateral flow, I, I would have had them sacrifice it or me sacrifice it right there, and we could have been, you know, off the table immediately. You know, and he never would have been, uh, he never would have been um, uh, unstable, loss of the blood. And then two, if you're going to take him down to angio suite, you know, the interventionalist, you like, you need to be sure where you deploy that stent and make sure it's going to be going across, you know, a level of injury. And then two, those that are, you know, we're like four now, those guys should have done a complete angio during that set, that time uh, and checked the contralateral circulation and maybe suggested sacrificing that. And then lastly, you know, again, trying to go cavalier again and try to repair it at the end after everything, again, was the wrong idea. We probably just needed to sacrifice it and, and get out of there. Now, again, luckily, he did okay, uh, but that's not going to always go that way, right? And so um, I think for me, it was a, it was a case uh, that I learned a lot from um, um, and um, will probably hopefully never go through that again, you know, because that, that was my first vert injury and not had one since then. I never want to see one again. But I think probably now, no matter what I face uh, in those kind of scenarios, I'll probably be able to approach it in a clear-minded fashion and think about all the algorithm, algorithms, 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 and steps we take when we're teaching, uh, and keep them in mind when we're facing it uh, in in real life. So, it, Mike, it did humble me. You know what I mean? I, I'm very more. I was much more humbled after that case. Learned a lot. Um, spent a lot of time with the wife uh, and him afterwards. Let him fully know what happened uh, all along the way and. Like I said, just thank goodness he made he made it he made it through, and I've yet to have another injury like that, and hope hope to never face that again. No, Mike, thanks for sharing that case. And just as an aside, um, you know, we we would have tried to stent it here in Miami too. I was just bringing up the sacrifice as a, in the sense that as we advance our technology, we also I don't want to say we lose stuff too, but we you know we have to be careful what we use because there's nuances to all the applications and operating on these older octogenarians all these things are are fraught with uh with problems that you know we didn't face probably when you and i were in training because we didn't operate on those people probably they were just too old that's exactly right we're operating on older people and you're right and now you think everybody wants to use the newest and latest device and it drives us into you know you're right we may try to put three stents across it as opposed to can we just sacrifice it and get this old person off the table quicker is probably would have been the better thing to better thing to do you are right keeping keeping in mind we go forward we're often focused on the technology and um we've got to keep that patient's um best interest in mind when we're taking care of in situations like this well thank you michael for sharing that case with us and uh enjoy 2022 you as well happy new year happy new year to all your podcast listeners What a great story from Dr. Steinmetz. Uh, again, I'm, I'm sorry I had to miss it. I was uh, stuck in the air on a flight, but uh, having just finished listening to it, I was really taken with um, the story itself, the, the fact that he was willing to share it. And we were talking a bit before we started recording here, just the, the idea of encountering a complication like that. And, and it, as you said, and as, as he pointed out during the story, this is a complication that we all know of, we all fear, you You give lectures on avoiding it and managing it when it happens. And I just can't imagine what it's like to finally face that and, and live through and experience that event so far into, into one's career after, as he said, being one of the guys that gives lectures about these things. Yeah, you know, I'm, I was thinking about the same thing and Mike has done somewhere between five and 10,000 spine surgeries, I'm guessing. And we're about the same age. And 
do you ever kind of get blunted to, you know, so he said it's the first injury of the vert that he had, but it's not his first complication. So do you just get kind of immune to it? But I didn't get that sense. I got the sense that it was very impactful um, and, and maybe frightening situation for him. That was my perception. Not that he would be afraid of it, but it should be, fr- it should be frightening, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's life-threatening potentially. Right. And I, I think that that's kind of the impression that I got where I, again, this is all for me speculation because I'm so early in my career, but I have never done anything in my life for as long as you, for as long as Dr. Steinmetz have done neurosurgery, have done spine surgery. And so when, when I was listening to him talk about this, and as, as you said, I agree, he sounded like this really impacted him and this really shook him at, as as it should shake any of us. It, I really got that sense that he's so far down the road of this skill, this practice, this career, and then being that far down the road and encountering this thing for the first time, I... I literally can't wrap my head around it because I've never done anything for as long as he's been doing spine surgery, much less spine surgery where you're, you're dealing with it's, you know, it's not like you're doing woodworking, you're operating on somebody, you're, you're dealing with their life and livelihood. And so I, I mean, I don't know you, you've been operating for that long. What goes through your mind when you, when you heard him talk about that, when you heard the, the way his voice changed talking about as it was, as it was happening and thinking about it. Uh, about the different steps he wished he had taken. How can you relate to uh, facing that experience so far down the road of spine surgery? Well, I can tell you, uh, JP, my first vert injury occurred in my first year of practice. Mm. And the patient was actually locked in. It was much more horrific than what he had. Yes. It was a transarticular screw. And we didn't even know we hit the vert. There was no bleeding. There was no... uh, And what happened was the vertebral artery actually dissected and it threw emboli into her brainstem and the patient, I'll never forget this lady, was locked in. Her husband was a psychologist and um, we actually terminally extubated her. And, you know, people make fun of these little injuries and there's all these videos of people sewing up the vert and, you know, you can sack a vert as we talked about even when I interviewed Mike. But it's, you know, these things that we're doing for those who aren't in neurosurgery are are non-trivial. There's no... I, I, I went nuts the other day in the OR. The residents were talking about, you know, I'm going to learn the bread and butter surgery. I'm like, there's no bread and butter mm. neurosurgery, right? So I think that partly it's like you get better control of your emotion. Like I never really lose it now. And I don't think Mike does because we're so seasoned in what we do. But I think on the other hand, our age maybe makes us almost more vulnerable to the understanding of what's happened. Um, so, you know, that deeper understanding is even more terrifying, but the emotive piece, I think gets better masked, maybe, or better adapted. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I, I think, you know, hearing you talk about that right now, you, even within my own life, obviously young within neurosurgery, but getting older, at least just as a person, I think I would agree that as we get older, at least those of us who think about these things and reflect on these things and, and frankly, who care about others, as we get older, I, I think anyone would feel more deeply and appreciate more deeply the impact of an error like that. If, you know, if, if you hurt someone in that way accidentally and you're already a parent, you can think about 
oh, this was someone's child, depending on the age of the patient. If, if you've lost people in your life or had friends and loved ones who were hurt or disabled in some way, you can better appreciate if you watch that happen to someone in your hands. Um, I wonder, though, if, if that happened to you your first year in practice, obviously you can't speak for Dr. Steinmetz and, and you, it is impossible for you to have the experience he had where it happened for the first time later. But at least from your perspective, would you rather have faced this for the first time decades into your career? Or are you, I wouldn't say happy, but if you had to pick one or the other, would you want it to happen right out of the gate like that? Or would you rather have more years of, of seasoning and experience on you before you had to face it? Yeah, you know, I don't think there's a good answer to that because no. I worry a lot about there, there are some attendings that, uh, and I've heard of this pattern, where now that we're doing the boards collection the way that the ABNS is doing, people are being super careful their first three years, right? Right. So what I'm seeing in, in the past couple of years is a handful of people, I, this is all anecdotal, of course, who have been super like down the lane, down the middle, careful, referring out anything complicated. And then they they say, well, I don't get complications, right? Because I just do the simple, like basic, straightforward stuff. And if something happened, then, you know, I can live with that. And one of two things can happen, potentially. One is that the person uh, gets a false sense of confidence, right? And the other is that the person can never deviate from um, the, that standard anymore. And of course, you know, the hope is you just have continual growth for the rest of your career, but but that's not always going to be the case. So I can tell you that it it's one of the reasons why we don't allow 14-year-olds to become doctors in America like they do in India. Like, you know, you hear about these like child prodigies, like do, there are no Doogie Housers in neurosurgery. We don't allow it. Everybody in neurosurgery, I think, is just as smart as Doogie Hauser was. But we don't allow it because maturity and wisdom is different from raw intellect or uh, or IQ firepower, right? There's a certain wisdom that comes from having experienced life, uh, having kids, having seen death, getting married, all these things that you mentioned that you can't confer to ease, can't easily confer to a, to an 18 year old. You know what I mean? Right. That's almost certainly true. It, it's it's also very interesting to think about it with this phenomenon that, that you're describing where people you know, take it easy, play it safe for a few years. And then once they feel free, they feel liberated, they're off the leash, then they start doing more complicated things. The other thing that's happening for those few years, besides the psychological experience, or lack of experience where they don't, you know, they don't have any complications. So they get that false sense of security. They're also not doing complicated surgeries for three years. And so you take somebody who was a chief resident, so operating uh, with the most complex cases they have their pick of, or they do a fellowship and they're doing high level complex surgeries with an expert mentor. And then they go three years doing lower level, quote unquote, simpler stuff, playing it safe, as you said. And now all of a sudden they're jumping right back into the deep end uh, when maybe those finer skills, the, that finer decision-making capacity has grown rusty, or at least hasn't continued to develop along with them in practice. And so there's that interesting interplay between the safety of a surgeon and their role as a trainee, their distance from training, um, that, that I think also has to be considered there. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I wanted to bring up another point about the training aspect. Now, and, and Mike's not on to defend or speak about it, but I, it struck me when he was telling us about this story, he, he describes showing the resident or fellow the exposure and all this. 
And I wonder, like, you know, if Mike was just doing the surgery on his own, would that have happened? And I'm not, believe me, I'm not indicting anybody on this. I'm just saying I see in my own practice and every single patient asks me, Dr. Wang, are you going to do the complete procedure and all this, right? You know, people are concerned about this. And there is this cost of training people. It's absolutely necessary to be paid. But, um, you know, when we're working with trainees and you're a trainee now, right? Right. How do you how do you measure that cost? Is it how much is worth it? Do you ever say to a person, well, you know, you're just not worth the, the human the, the, the human cost of training because you're not going to be good enough anyways, right? Like that that was the old school like Charlie Wilson, I think, way of thinking about this. What's your opinion on that? You're in training now. Well, as you said, I'm in training now and I like to think that if I thought I was more dangerous than I could be safe, I would walk away. And, and in fact, I don't know if I ever said this out loud to you, but when I was applying for neurosurgery, I used to tell my family and my friends and, and myself that if I matched and I got there and I turned out to not be good enough or to be bad at some arbitrary threshold I set in my head, I would walk away because I'd rather not hurt people. And who knows how much truth there was to that. But obviously this, this is like everything that we do in our lives and our career, there's the risk and the benefit. Um, I know that at Rush where I train, our attendings are frank with our patients that there are residents in the room and they explain why, A, that it's an expert level of assistance for them to do the surgery, but B, because this is how you get more surgeons. And uh, Rich Byrne, at least, my chairman, Dr. Byrne, will, will always say during a surgery when we get to the you know, we talk about the critical portion of the procedure and, and, you know, the whole procedure is the critical portion. But when you get to the really delicate part of taking a tumor off an artery or something like that, he will often say, listen, you're just as capable of doing this as I am. But this is the part where we really have a high risk of hurting someone intrinsic to the procedure. So if that's going to happen, it's going to be in my hands and I'm going to do this part. And he'll just step in and, and do that part that has the highest intrinsic risk. Um, but as you said, you know, each individual who shows up to be trained and welcomes a trainee into their room has to find that own their own level of balance and comfort with increasing the intrinsic risk of a risky proposition. Well, you know, I was having like a like a bourbon late night conversation with a neurosurgeon and, and this person was telling me it was a friendly conversation, but this person was telling me they'd kind of. You know, they made their money. They're done. They're going to hang it up. They're going to retire. It's time, right? And it was not an old person, by the way. It was a, it was a middle-aged, very, very uh, capable and talented surgeon about my age. And I, I, I got into it with this person. I said, listen, you know, I think about it kind of like, you know, Tom Cruise and Top Gun. Like the cost of training a, uh, in his case, it would have been F-14. Uh, I'm sorry. Was it F-14 Tomcat, right? That he was yeah. flying or f 35 Raptor or whatever you're going to call it, the cost of training that person um, in terms of, of, you know, U.S. tax dollars is, is substantial. And then the maintenance of that in flight hours is something like, you know, $30,000 a month or a week or something like that. It's ridiculous, right? So, you know, we invest in our trainees and we, you know, we allow them to extract this sort of cost, if you will. It's different. It's not economic. Um, so, you know, they kind of owe it to society to pay back, if you will, by working. And so it bothers me a lot, people who have sort of gone through training and they're like, yeah, I trained. And, and they're not, I'm not talking about the people that aren't good. I'm talking about the people that are, that are good. And they say, well, you know, I'm done now. And 
it's it's to me seems very egocentric and maybe i'll walk this back as i get older and i say well look i can't take it anymore but i feel like people who've gone through this process that's so long and so risky um they kind of owe it to then do x number of uh good deeds if you want to call them that right. acts of, of goodness or saving lives if you want to call it that no i mean you're i i could not agree with you more um not not only financially if if you know you go to medical school or your residency is funded by public dollars but really ethically morally the the wisdom and training and whatever degree of scientific knowledge we have in medicine and in neurosurgery that that is not something that any one person can claim credit for we're handed these things down um, through a lineage of people who decided to show up do the work that they could do and then train the next generation and so if you take a training position in medical school and neurosurgical residency that you know by definition hundreds or thousands of other people wanted the chair that you got, then I think there's certainly some degree of obligation, one, to use the training that you get for the patients of your day, but then two, to again, pass that on to the next generation to, to keep everything moving forward. Even if you don't advance the field, if you don't innovate technically, you, you know, you know things that almost no one else in the world knows, and you should at least show it to somebody else before you hang it up, as you said. As usual, you've put it more, more, uh, more beautifully than I could. But I think it's it's a controversial topic. I'm very eager to hear our uh, listeners uh, comment. You can always comment uh, via email to us, and we'd love to to talk about what our listeners are thinking. Uh, but I re I really want to thank Mike Steinmetz, um, who's a stalwart in our field, for sharing this this very difficult case. I mean, this is this is the kind of stuff that we deal with um, on a regular basis. Absolutely. What a, what a great story. Thank you again, Dr. Steinmetz. And thanks, Dr. Wang, for talking about it with me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.